Hi, I'm Bob Eckblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple. Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. I'm here in Toulouse, France, after having flown in yesterday from two weeks in Zambia and then Cape Town. And um, in both of those places, we were offering our module two of our certificate in transformational ministry at the margins. And uh, we had uh, in our last group, we were in the township of Manenberg, which is a colored township that was set up by the apartheid government of South Africa and uh, had a really powerful time going through uh, scriptures and teachings about uh, healing of, of our heart wounds and trauma. And this was among a very traumatized people. And um, anyway, we got talking um, a couple nights ago with some friends who live in Cape Town about how um, just the rise of nationalism, the rise of, um, you know, a kind of ideological, I guess, uh, fundamentalism that we see in um, all over the world. We definitely see it in North America right now. And that's what concerns me because today is the is the anniversary of 9-11. And that's, um, you know, a moment in our nation's history and in the UK and really around the world where there was a, a huge upsurge in nationalism. You know, I think of just uh, all the flags that went up in the United States, you know, right in the aftermath of 9-11 and followed by um, the invasion of Afghanistan and then Iraq, you know, two um, invasions that were just, uh, you know, were just horrific in terms of the negative impact that they had on those countries and on the world. And, you know, but has nationalism decreased? No, it, it really seems like it's, it's stronger than ever. It's like in this uh, period right now, at least in the United States, as we're moving towards the 2024 election, you know, we see the extreme political polarization. And, you know, and a lot of it is, uh, and there are many signs of just, uh, you know, the, the resurgence, I guess, in, in American nationalism. And, and my friends in Sweden and, uh, you know, here in South Africa and other places are, are noticing it lots of different places. So I just wanted to address that. I, after that conversation, I immediately found myself turning to Psalm 81, which is such a powerful scripture. It just seems so appropriate. I couldn't believe that I, you know, I was just reading my, the Psalms and that was the first one I turned to. And I, I just want to start by looking at, um, you know, um, several verses here that, that talk about this. Um, you know, I, I, I think this scripture and then the one following it, Psalm 82, need to really be studied. So I just want to start with verse 9. There must be no other God among you. You must not worship a foreign God. And um, these are small g gods. And, uh, you know, but here God, you know, the psalmist is really addressing God's people, you know, who were prone to idolatry as we are now. And, and insisting there must be no other God among you, no other. And what are some of the gods, the dominant gods um, that we can identify? You know, like when I think of myself sort of in the state of, say, in the parable of the, of the Pharisee and the public and the tax collector, you know, where the Pharisee was, you know, was saying, oh, Lord, thank you so much that I'm not like those tax collectors, you know, those... Um, you know, those evil people that are just betraying our, you know, our great nation by selling taxes. And, you know, I fast and I and I and I. 
and he was differentiating himself, which I can easily do. I can say, oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like those right-wing Republicans. You know, I am a global, you know, Christian, and I travel around the world and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, I know there's idolatry that is everywhere. We, we want to make sure that we're able to take the log out of our own eye before we try to take the speck out of our brother and sister's eyes. Although those specks certainly look even bigger than logs, don't they? So, you know, what might be some of the, the, the ways that we put other gods first? You know, I know that um, ministry itself can be an idol or success in, in ministry, success in being, um, you know, a follower of Jesus, a disciple. I can, I can be comparing myself to other maybe more successful um, ministries or pastoral workers or teachers and, and then feel like I'm, I'm, I'm sorely lacking, you know, I mean, and feel driven to work harder. And I've done that. And, um, and I want to resist that, um, you know, fame, um, wealth, you know, money, um, security, you know, like, uh, as I move towards retirement age, I'm not ready to retire, but, you know, uh, I just see a lot of people, you know, talking about, about these issues. And, and I see how the stock market, you know, is a God for our culture among Lots of people, you know, anyone really looking at trying to prepare themselves for retirement. Many people have, you know, have money in the stock market. And wow, is that ever a, you know, an idol? And um, investment experts say, well, you know, you just, just leave your money in there. Don't worry about it. You know, the markets go up, the markets go down. But, you know, uh, put your trust in the, in the market because in the long run, it'll end up going up more than it'll go down. And there's this faith that in the market isn't there? There's a faith that um, that is promoted, and there's testimonies about that. Like back years ago, you know, I saw the stock market going down, and I didn't take out my money, and then sure enough, it went up, and then I gained all this money. You know, there's testimonies that support the the belief in mammon, in you know, wealth as a god, and I'm sure that's probably the most dominant god in our culture. And um, you know, I think of all the Honduran folks that we worked with. You know, back in the day, uh, we're still down there as well now. And uh, our pastor, David, talks about just the huge movement of people heading towards North America. You know, many of whom um, haven't even really tried to be subsistence farmers because they've given up on that. You know, because in a way that was abandoned just, just post-NAFTA, you know, when uh, the U.S. was dumping grains on the markets of, of Mexico and Central America which caused farmers to not even be able to produce grain. Um, if, you know, um, I mean, they, they could buy it cheaper, you know, from the U.S. than they could to produce it themselves. And, you know, so subsistence farming was really undermined, you know, by that, that policy that of, you know, just uh, free trade, which benefited the rich and the powerful, not the poor. But anyway, so for lots of reasons, people are, are leaving Honduras. And there's this view that, um, in the north, in the U.S., that's where um, they're going to find, you know, the land of milk and honey. And people are making huge sacrifices to migrate. And, uh, you know, clearly when they get here, they're able to find work pretty easily. But it's menial work often and underpaid. And they find themselves struggling, to, you know, just to cover all the costs of living in, in North America. And same thing goes for African people that are heading towards Europe and so there's an allure to the, you know, to the wealthy nations, the, 
and, and many of, of the world's poor are trying to move away from the insecurity of where they are. They're, you know, here, in, they're down in South Africa, many of the nations surrounding South Africa, even as far up as Congo, uh, people are coming in as refugees or as, I mean, just seeking to come in un, as undocumented workers. And um, there's 3 million Zimbabweans in South Africa and many Malawi, people from Malawi and Congo. So all over the world, we see uh, people who are uh, stuck in or in a place of, of really not seeing there's many options financially, economically for themselves, uh, being willing to risk their lives to migrate. And I don't want to criticize that because I, I understand that, you know, uh, with climate change and with just, uh, you know, the, the realities of, of just uh, wealth inequities in the world, um, many people don't have land, people don't have options. But anyway, what are the dominant idols that you could identify? Um, you know, um, I think right now in the United States, I think USA and even the US Constitution is clearly an idol for many people. You know, there's there's a belief that, that the United States was founded by Christians and on Christian principles and, and that we need to get back to that and that and there's an elevation of the Constitution uh, to the level of a God. And um, democracy too can be viewed as an idol you know, where we just believe that our system of government, where we, you know, where we educate, we have an ideally an educated public that are able to, you know, to make wise choices and, and the will of the people is elevated as something that's, that's really an idol in our culture as well. It clearly is disappointing many people because our systems of, are, are so corrupted and, you know, and right now, um, you know, the elevation of one party versus another party is dividing the body of Christ and dividing Christians and dividing Americans. And in Europe, the same thing. You have, you have populist parties that are, uh, that are on the rise. And, uh, and in the state of Israel as well, you know, just many places everywhere around the world, we have this problem. And Christians often are just no different than, than people that don't claim to be disciples of Jesus in terms of their allegiances and where they show um, their highest, I guess, what their what their highest values are that are really often not identifiable as the kingdom of God, like Jesus calls us to seek first the kingdom of God and his and the righteousness of God, and not to worry about what we eat, drink, or put on. But anyway, let's look at Psalm eighty-one, um, and I want us to really think about what this scripture is saying to us in this period right now where idolatry is rampant and easily justified. Shout for joy to God, our source of strength. Shout out to the God of Jacob. Sing a song and play the tambourine, the pleasant sounding harp and the 10 stringed instrument. Sound the ram's horn on the day of the new moon, on the day of the full moon when our festival begins. For observing the festival is a requirement for Israel. It's an ordinance given by the God of Jacob. He decreed it as a regulation in Joseph when he went out from the land of Egypt. Okay, so these first five verses are describing, um, are using language that's similar to the language of um, Moses' song in Exodus 15, where Miriam is described as going out with, with timbrels and dancing. And there's a celebration because they've just come out from the land of slavery. And we have... Um, 
this happening, uh, this sort of worship happening in the aftermath of different victories elsewhere in the Old Testament. And, you know, and the, the ram's horn is associated with um, the Day of Atonement, but also the day of um, the Feast of Tabernacles when Israel remembers, you know, being in the wilderness and when they trusted in God, you know, when they were led from place to place and God provided for them. And so all of this is evoking um, like the celebration of God's victory, you know, when Israel needed to be freed from slavery and they were because God intervened. And so the celebration is based on a remembrance of liberating actions of God, you know, from actual slavery and from being sorely outnumbered by enemies. So um, here's what gets really interesting for me. Um, and by the way, I'm using the Net Bible here, which is a really pretty excellent translation um, that I find helpful here because there's, it seems like there's lots of differences in the way different verses are translated looking at the New American Standard or the NIV or some of uh, other foreign translations and also the Greek version, the Septuagint. So there's differences in this. Um, so I know that the Hebrew here is not, not easy in some places and, um, and there's different ways of reading this. But verse 5, it said, I heard a voice I did not recognize. And, um, and then that's followed by a quote. It said, and now here's God speaking. I removed the burden from his shoulder. His hands were released from holding the basket. So here, um, the voice that isn't recognized is a voice that is God's voice, stating that God has um, been the one who removed the burden from the shoulder, which is referring to the forced labor of the Israelites who were, you know, who were enslaved in Egypt. And what is the burden that is on your shoulder, on my shoulder? What, um, what's the basket that that we're holding that, you know, that is represents a kind of toil where we're trying to save ourselves or, or we're, we feel forced to, you know, to do something for our own survival, you know, in what ways are we enslaved? And, um, and, and here God is saying to the people, I, I removed the burden from your shoulder and have we experienced that? Um, and have we forgotten it? Um, here the, the writer says, I heard a voice I didn't recognize. And, um, in other words, uh, the writer didn't recognize the voice of God. And, and so perhaps, uh, but, they, but the writer did hear it. And, um, and that's something that I, that I find really helpful and hopeful is um, when God speaks, maybe sometimes we, we notice that um, something is coming towards us, you know, God's you know, thoughts or maybe a vision or, or words, or, you know, we, we find ourselves reflecting. And, um, but it's, it may not be something that we recognize, but let's pay attention, right? To that voice, because, um, it's, a, it, it often is a foreign sounding voice, a voice maybe that, um, you know, that is uncommon and, and we need to tune into that voice in order for us to, to be able to move to another place out of a place of idolatry towards a place of, of, of celebration, you know, because here, this, this whole Psalm as we've seen, starts with worship, you know, which is the ultimate pledging of allegiance. And it's a pledging allegiance here to God, who's the only savior, the only liberator. Verse seven, in your distress, you called, says God, and I rescued you. 
and I answered you from a dark thundercloud. And that's a reference to uh, Moses and uh, meeting with God on Mount Sinai. You know, when um, once again, it was uh, it wasn't super clear to Moses. He wasn't seeing God face to face at that point. It was, you know, God even revealed God's backside to Moses on, on, on that mountain. But um, but anyway, thunders, thunderstorm is is associated with theophanies, you know, where God appears. And and um, and so, you know, let's pay attention to times when maybe God really wants to 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 be communicating with us. And let's be inspired by this verse that when we are in distress, let it, let's call out and expect God's rescuing. And um, in the New Testament, these terms are used like everywhere. You know, the, the rescuing um, is, uh, is referenced in many places. And maybe I'll, I'll point some of those out a little bit later in this podcast. So anyway, God says, I answered you. And then God says, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. And that's a, a reference to, to Exodus chapter 17, when the people ran out of water. And, um, you know, and they had already received help, like earlier in chapter 15, God provided water. And God provided, you know, manna and meat. And then right after that, it's like they've forgotten already. And they're murmuring and they're complaining. And um, and then anyway, so that's something that we can easily do. And, and this is why mammon becomes just so seductive, you know, and just wanting something secure. You know, we, you know, we are prone to just uh, forget so easily after God has provided for us a way out, a way of escape. You know, we just relapse back into just uh, thinking we have to do it by the sweat of our brow and uh, or thinking we have to, you know, put our trust, you know, in something higher that, other than God. You know, like what is the higher power that is the highest power in your life? Is it the father of Jesus, uh, the son of God, or is it is it something else? You know, what is the highest power in our lives? So. Um, Verse 10, I am the Lord your God, the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. And um, so anyway, here God is offering this, um, and this is an offer that continues for us today. You know, uh, for us to open our mouths, uh, which is pretty easily easy. And, and I guess the worshipers here already have their mouths open because they're worshiping. Open your mouth and I will fill it. And um, and so do we give God an opportunity to, to do that for us? Uh, apparently in verse 11, the people of God didn't. And when Israel's mentioned here, I, 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 I like to talk about that. It's just the people of God to make a link, a bridge between Israel and us. Um, so verse 11, but my people did not obey me. Um, in fact, that word obey is, uh, is the Shema. It's the same word as hear. So, but my people didn't, didn't hear me, um, assuming that if they heard, they would respond. Um, so, um, you know, earlier God says in verse eight, um, I said, listen, my people, listen, my people, I, and I will warn you. Oh, Israel, oh, God's people, if you would, if you would obey me. And that's when he says, there must be no other God among you. You must not worship a foreign God, uh, because I, the Lord, um, I'm your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And this is a direct reference to the first commandment 
of Exodus 20, which is something that has just been striking me so hard lately. Um, then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And for that reason, since God is the one who did it, who brings us out of that place and is our liberator, so it's not um, the, the forefathers of the United States or the Constitution or um, who brought you know the people into to, you know to the U.S. from you know from Britain or whatever, and brought them into this land, um, the land of the United States, or you know, or we, whatever our founding story is of our nation or our, our people group, our tribe. We must be so careful that that we are um, able to let that story be completely critiqued and 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 um, corrected. You know, especially if we're if we're calling ourselves disciples of Jesus. Um, so because it's the Lord that brings them out of the house of Egypt and it's not the, the U.S. military, you know, or special forces or, you know, or something that is, you know, that claims um, credit, you know, like uh, democracy or capitalism, um, you know, which claim credit, you know, for so much, um, so much wealth creation and so much um, success in, in quotation marks you know, in um, the West, in, in North America. Um, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. So, um, because God is wanting our total um, devotion and allegiance that it's, um, God says, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. So third and fourth generations would be, you know, the the people in our own lives that we would have maybe a living memory of, you know, like our grandparents, even great great grandparents, grandparents, parents, you know, us, our generation, our children, our grandchildren. So, you know, we're affected uh, negatively by the idolatry of the people that are in our um, in our living memory and we our idolatry affects those coming after us but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments so wow the benefits are so much greater uh, for us and for our descendants um, when we are loving God and keeping God's uh, commandments God's words and directives and um, you know like when we're paying attention to God's voice and doing what God calls us to do um, there's huge benefits. So anyway, I'm going to continue with Psalm um, 81 here. So um, there must be no other God among you. You must not worship a foreign God. I'm the Lord your God, the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Direct you know, reference to Exodus 20 verse, verses 1 and 2. So open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not obey me. They didn't hear me. Israel did not submit to me. And so verse 12, I gave them over to their stubborn desires. They did what seemed right to them. Okay, so this, this is where we're at, really, a lot of us. And um, this is where Christianity is, is at, in a crisis point in the West and in lots of other places. You know, we, we choose to, to go um, the way of our own, way, their own, our own heart, the way of our own reasonings, you know, rather than trusting in um, putting our complete devotion in, in Jesus. And, you know, when we, um, when we're all about social justice, which is important, 
but we, we're not remembering that the prophetic tradition is just, uh, there's just rampant description of idolatry and critique and exposure of idolatry. And this is often something that's missing in the social justice movements of the body of Christ is, um, you know, we point out injustices and rightly so, but often we're not really, really um, illuminating or pointing out or, or exposing, you know, the dominant idols and calling people away from idolatry to um, a pure devotion to uh, the one and only God who's revealed most fully in Jesus and um, who is the Christ, you know, the, the anointed one, the Messiah, who uh, conquers evil and, and death through, uh, you know, submitting to, um, to the powers in a way, to the enemy, but to, as, as someone who's persecuted and, and put to death by it, but then overcomes the powers um, of death and all the principalities and powers through, you know, through the cross and, um, and through the resurrection. And so Jesus has defeated um, the powers and the principalities. And, and we, we believe that his way of defeating it through, um, you know, self-giving love through, through emptying himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that, that that's the way forward. And, and we need to remember that over and over and over again, because it's so easy to forget it and to be like the people that did not listen, that didn't obey and didn't submit to God's ways. And so uh, then God uh, gives them over to their stubborn desires. And they did, we did what seemed right to us. Verse 13, if only my people would obey me, if only Israel would keep my commands. Um, God is pleading with uh, us and God is longing for us to be in a place of trust where we're, we're hearing this foreign voice, foreign sounding voice, but we're, you know, we're trusting, we're, you know, we're turning away from um, that which is familiar, that which is known, that which seems trustworthy or more trustworthy than, you know, that foreign voice. Um, and, um, and we're choosing to walk this path of, of radical trust and, and obedience. Um, so when we do that, verse 14, then God says, I would quickly subdue their enemies and attack their adversaries. And I read this as spiritual enemies and spiritual adversaries. You know, um, in the light of, uh, you know, of Paul's writings about how our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness in the heavenly places. And, um, you know, thinking about just that, you know, I think Ephesians chapter one is, is you know, a place that I often go to as well as, you know, um, Colossians one and in first Corinthians 15. But let's just look at Ephesians chapter one, where, um, you know, where it says that God raised, um, see, these are in accordance with the workings of the strength of God's might, which he brought about in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So all the, all the small g gods, um, have been put under the feet of Christ. Uh, verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet. Uh, you know, all the small g gods. And this is in direct rapport with, you know, Genesis 1, where God makes humans, male and female, in God's image. And, um, and puts all of the non-human creation under, under the human being's feet. 
and says for us to rule over the powers. And so the powers include the, the non, um, you know, the non-sentient beings, you know, the, the principalities and powers that, that, which allows for organizations and nations and tribes and institutions and brands and, you know, and images of all kinds to be, to be set up. You know, we are supposed to rule over um, those powers. And so it's because all these things have been put in subjection to Jesus's feet and that Jesus was given as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Because Jesus is the head of the church, we too are part of that victory. And um, we see that in, in the next chapter. Verse 6 says, you know, um, we've been saved by grace. Um, you know, we're made alive with Christ in verse 5. And raised up with him and seated he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So um, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, um, far above all these powers, you know, which are finite and will eventually be destroyed. Just like um, the char Pharaoh's chariots um, were destroyed in, um, you know, in the waters of the Sea of Reeds, you know, when the Israelites came through on dry ground, but then... Um, the waters covered over the chariots and and it's at the at the destruction of the powers it's it's there on the other side in the desert um that israel celebrates you know with the timbrels and dancing you know which is how this psalm began and so um let's remember this okay and um let's remember that um jesus must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet and um and that is uh, referencing um, verse 24, which says, then comes the end when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he's abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. So, so anyway, um, we are, um, we need to remember this, that all of these small g gods need to be under the feet, under our feet, under the feet of Jesus. And, and that happens when we um, are realigned in our devotion and in our worship of the one and only God. Verse 15, may those who hate the Lord cower in fear before him, may they be permanently humiliated. Once again, I think that's talking about the spiritual powers and principalities of the demonic realm. Um, God says, I would feed Israel. I would feed God's people the best wheat and would satisfy your appetite with honey from the rocky cliffs. Wow. So let's, let's move in that direction. And let's try, you know, to put our trust in God in some fresh ways. And um, as we think about 9-11, if we, if we do today or this week, you know, let's remember um, that, you know, when um, the enemy strikes, and when fear rises up in our hearts, that's when, you know, we need to turn to God. Um, who in those moments maybe feels like a foreign uh, voice and we need to turn to the scriptures and realign ourselves with the liberating message of the gospel revealed in Jesus and his life, death and resurrection.